0: Applications are now open for Mentora Foundation's second iteration of the Youth Changemaker Fellowship. Mentora Foundation is the non-profit arm of Mentora Institute. Its mission is to develop a fellowship of global changemakers across disciplines who are committed to building a principled world by strengthening the mental, moral, and social fibers in their families, organizations, communities, and nations, beginning with their own self. Guided by the Mentora Institute faculty and team, the goal of the Youth Changemaker Fellowship is to equip highly committed and talented youth with the insights, skills, and experiences needed to help them in the years ahead to bring positive and deep change in the values and practices of whatever discipline they choose, whether it's law or medicine, politics, arts, science, or business. Along the way, the fellowship will invite these fellows to strengthen their own character and build a strong foundation at their core. If you are an aspiring changemaker currently pursuing your undergraduate studies, then I invite you to visit our website, mentora.foundation. Learn more about the fellowship, and if it resonates with you, please send us your application. If you know of someone in your circle of friends and family, who could benefit from this fellowship, then I encourage you to share this with them as well. Thank you.
1: The science tells us that regret is part of our cognitive machinery. It is there for a reason. Uh, It makes us feel bad, but if we treat it right, it can help us do better, and that's, that's the key. Um, and so, you know, I, in my own view, I think especially here in the States, we're a little over indexed on positive emotions. Positive emotions are great. We should have lots of them, but we shouldn't have only positive emotions. Uh, we should have some negative emotions too, because negative emotions are adaptive, they're functional, they help us live, they help us survive, they help us improve.
0: Greetings and a warm welcome to all of you to Intersections where our goal is to dissolve the boundaries in order to allow us to have a more expansive attunement with the laws of human nature and with our own potential individually and collectively today it is my great joy to have with us daniel pink um dan has invested his career in life in exploring the science of human potential of human nature deep diving into a whole range of different topics that uh, have provided much insights, illumination and inspiration to me and countless others. Um, He got his bachelor's from Northwestern University, where he was a Truman scholar. He received his JD from Yale Law School, where he was the editor-in-chief of the Yale Law and Policy Review. Since then, he's gone on to be the former host and um, co-executive producer of Crowd Control, a TV series about human behavior on National Geographic, Uh, Soon after law school, he worked in several positions in politics and government, including serving as the chief speechwriter for the former vice president, Al Gore. He is frequently featured in leading media, including New York Times, Harvard Business Review, PBS, CNN, and several other TV and radio networks, and is the award-winning author of five New York Times bestseller books on themes to do with business and work and creativity and behavior like Drive, When, To Sell is Human, A Whole New Mind, and his most recent work that we're going to talk about today, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Talk about intersection. Talk about the idea of dissolving the boundaries between the past, the present, and the future. Great joy to have in our midst Dan Pink. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Atendra. Thanks for having me. I want to start by highlighting um, an interesting point of intersection, in a sense, between your path in life and mine. And um, when I was reading your book, um, you know, you shared the story, which is so beautiful around how, um, and powerful, around how you go to Yale Law School and you somehow end up feeling like a little bit of a misfit, right? Um, And not feeling like it's the real you, it's really giving you the stimulation that you really need. At some point, you discover that. And you almost feel like, like a sense of regret about that. And at the same time, you end up having something really beautiful occur and manifest in your life on the basis of that time you spent there. Um, what was that, Dan, by the way? Well, I met my
1: wife in law school, uh, which is the main thing that I got out of the whole experience. And you know, as you as you say, when you look back on your life, um, you know, there's some things that you wish you had done, some things you wish you hadn't done, some things you wish you had done differently. And I think that if, and it's an interesting kind of metaphysical puzzle, that if I had my life to live over again, would I have gone to law school? Probably not. But if the only way I could meet my wife was to go to law school, I would totally do it
0: again. And that is um, such a cool story. Such a cool story. So I had something almost similar happen to me. I ended up coming probably around the same time as you, since I think we're not that dissimilar in age, um, for graduate school right after college. And when I look back, I also ended up feeling at that point that, you know what, <laughs> it wasn't really the ideal vocation for me. I did a PhD in business analytics and um, I'd taken a break from school for a couple of years. When I came back to finish my PhD, that's the time I met my wife as well. And so I do feel very grateful for that period in my life, even though it didn't yield necessarily the qualification that you know has mattered most to me in my life, but it did yield something so much more profound and deep and beautiful. But then the the other commonality in our pathways there is that when I uh, packed my bags from India and came to the United States, um, the first graduate school environment I came to was actually Yale. Um, and it was the year 1988-89. Did you happen to be there that year or did you yeah. come there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, So there we were. We were probably in You know, hanging out in some of the similar streets and I don't know, Naples Pizza or Wawa Market or, you know, Helen Hadley Hall or, you know, HGS or something. But um, so that, but then I transferred in my case to MIT and I ended up um, pursuing my PhD at MIT a year later. So that was probably the only time we might have overlapped, you know, at Yale for that year. Regret—that's the theme of your book. You have, in the past, also zeroed in on, you know, one profound, key, deep, thought-provoking theme, whether it's about human motivation or the timing of events or what have you. What is it that made you, of the plethora of ideas and thoughts and issues out there, zoom in on regret this time round? It was largely because I had
1: regrets of my own. And so I think that's one big part of it. The second big part of it was that I was at a point in my life where, to my surprise, I had room to look backward. Um, You know, I went from in a lot of work situations from being the youngest person in the room to no longer being the youngest person in the room. And I had sort of markers in my own family life, for instance, a daughter graduating from university that made me just stop and take stock and look back and say, whoa, that was Some time has passed, and like any human being, when I look backward, there were things that, as I was mentioning earlier, there are things that I wish I had done. There were things I wish I hadn't done. There were things I wish I had done differently. And I thought that was an interesting emotion. Uh, I was actually working on a book about something entirely different, but when I began talking to people about this experience that I had, I found that people really leaned in and reacted in a way that was surprising. And so I decided to take this on. I mean, there's an old adage you know from academe in the academic world, you know, all research is me-search. So at some level, that's part of what's going on here.
0: You know, kudos for taking this on. And then you didn't just take this on, you took it on with a vengeance. I mean, that um, that survey that you all did um, is rich and uh, has uncovered so much as you've uh, covered in the book. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of uh, led you down that path of data collection? Sure, sure. So, so for this book, um, I ended up pursuing basically
1: the to try to, figure, try to crack the code on this emotion. I, I, I had three strategies, three different approaches, and, um, and I wasn't sure exactly what each of them was going to yield, but my, my hunch, my guess was that if I tried all three, something would work, and that ended up being the case, although I was surprised a little bit about how things turned out. So one path was to look at the existing academic research on this emotion of regret, and this is research done over the last 60 years or so um, a lot of it in social psychology, some of it in developmental psychology, uh, some of it in cognitive science, some of it in neuroscience. And so what is what is, you know, a half century of academic research tell us about this emotion? That's part one. That, that's one part of it. Second thing that I did is I did a very large public opinion survey of the U.S. population. And for this, it was a pretty I mean, I, I'm very proud of this piece of research. It didn't yield nearly as much as I thought, but I thought the project itself was was, was well done. Uh, we put together a very, very large sample. Uh, I mean, I worked with a data analytics company I uh, worked with um, who put together panels so that we had random samples, and we ended up surveying 4,489 Americans um, and uh, trying to do the largest pu- uh, public opinion survey of American attitudes about regret ever conducted. And that yielded some insights, although not nearly as many as I had hoped. And then finally, last but not least, I also did a qualitative piece of research, uh, which is called the World Regret Survey, where I simply invited people around the world to submit one of their big regrets. And to date, we have a database of over, we're now over 24,000 regrets from people in 109 countries.
0: It's very moving, actually, to read some of those um, expressions of people's re- regrets. Yeah. I mean- um...
1: oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. It's It's, you know, each of those 24,000 regrets is kind of a Kind of a, a, a super concentrated mini autobiography, uh, and they're moving is a good word for it. They don't bring you down, they don't necessarily bring you up, but they touch you uh, in in ways that uh, other kinds of material does not.
0: I mean, you know, we're living at a time and there is so much tension and stress, and you know, divisions and quick rush to judgments and all of that in our social fabric and. And yet when I read something like that and I'm assuming, you know, it cuts across, right? It cuts across all of those groups, you know, that are otherwise like going into fights and more with each other. But like you look at that and see like, wow, you know, at its core, humanity has so much sweetness, purity, a desire to be good and to do the right thing and to be courageous and all of that. They may not be able to live up to it every given day. But yeah. when you look at um, that, that database, you know, it, it reveals the, yeah, anyway, so, I, so, so again, I mean, I, you know. I think that you can—I I mean, I, I think that that is the conclusion that I came to.
1: I think what you're, make, you're making, in some ways, two different points they are related. One of them is, are there attributes of the human condition that are universal, that transcend the typical superficial things that we tend to uh, f- focus on—nationality, gender, race? Um, and what I found, both in the qualitative survey and in the quantitative survey, is that I feel like there were some pretty significant universals. There were obviously—there there were some— differences demographically, but not nearly as much as I thought. In fact, going back to that quantitative survey, uh, the reason that I did such a large sample was because so, so so I could have, I could oversample in certain subgroups and draw conclusions about, say, you know, yeah. African-American regrets different from white Americans, regrets different from Asian-American, regrets different from women's regrets, different. Well, yeah. And I didn't find that much, as I said before. So 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 one part is is, is universal. But the, the second part is like, what is universal? What are the universals? And I do think that there is a universal Kind of, I think a more generous view of the human condition. Um, this our desire for goodness and love, uh, and you know, I, I think there's a. T- I mean, it's been a debate in philosophy for a long time. and sort of what is the core of human nature? Is it you know red and tooth and claw? Is it treacherous or is it generous and kind and noble and Obviously, it's both. It's a mix. But I actually tilt a little bit more toward the idea that, that our fundamental nature is
0: is good. One way to organize and structure that that you've discovered is from the work of one of my colleagues here at Columbia, uh, Tori Higgins, right? And you talk about the ought self versus the ideal self versus the actual self. Exactly. That, that's
1: another way of thinking through. That's another way of thinking through who we are, as you know, and as you said, Summarize very concisely. You know, we have this idea that you know the actual self is who we look at in the mirror. The ideal self is is in some ways who we aspire to be, and the ought self is who we think we should be. And those end up those categories ended up being fairly consistent with what I found looking at these massive number of qualitative regrets, basically just you know twenty four thousand individual autobiographies. Because what I found is that uh, these regrets grouped into four key categories. Uh, and those categories, I think, map pretty well to Higgins's notion, particularly of the ideal and the ought self.
0: So let's maybe unpack that for a moment. So as I think about it, uh, is it fair to say that the um, ought self, uh, the one that you should be, is yeah. based on things you inherit from society, from the world around you, where there are certain norms and expectations of what good looks like, what you know, what what a good yeah, human being looks like, and then the ideal self is that more what your innate yearnings are? I don't know. It's an interesting
1: question. I'm not sure. I, I actually don't. I, I actually am not certain. I mean, I can tell you what I saw. I, I really don't know what I, I can tell you what I saw with with my own stuff, which is that there were. Um, so, so one category. I'll give you an example. One category of regrets were uh, were moral regrets. It was a small cat, smallest category of my four big categories. My moral regrets, which is basically if only I'd done the right thing. So you're at a juncture in your life, you can do the right thing, you can do the wrong thing, people do the wrong thing, most of us regret it. Now, what constitutes the wrong thing is complicated because we don't have that kind of universality. So let me give you an example. So if we go to uh, moral foundations theory, this idea that there is a set of values that are pretty consistent across Cultures, but that they're not necessarily shared by all. So, so for instance, we generally think that it's if you harm somebody else in an unwarranted way, that's bad. Everybody agrees with that. But when it comes to things like duty, respect for authority, respect for purity, respect for th- sanctity, there's there's kind of a divide. So, um, so we have people who give me an example. We have people who regret a lot of people around the world regret bullying other people. Uh, earlier in their life. I was surprised by the numbers of bullying regrets that we had. These are Again, these are not people who are on the receiving end of the bullying. These right. are people who are on the delivery end of the bullying. Yeah. And I, I, I was blown away by how many people regretted that. So that's something hmm. that pretty clearly is the wrong thing to do. You're harming someone in an unjustified way. Now, hmm. here's where it gets more complicated. Uh, I had some people in the United States whose big regret was they didn't serve in the military. Why didn't they serve in the military? They, they, they why do they regret that? Because they felt like they had an honor. It was, it was, it was sure. their obligation as a citizen to do that. And there are some people who say, "Well, that's not a regret." And my view on that is like, you don't get to, t- you don't get to say that that these are people for whom the moral duty of honor and yeah. obligation are extremely important. Um, and so, this is just a long-winded way of saying one of the four yeah. core regrets. These moral regrets are more
0: complicated than some of the others. You know, the, the thing about bullying, um, it reminds me of, uh, have you have you ever come across this field of study called near-death experiences? I've seen a little bit of it, yes. I cover a little bit of that in my book. I, I recently wrote a book called Inner Mastery, Outer Impact. And um, one of the, I mean, I've been fascinated by just this whole journey towards like you know that that ultimate point in our life and what happens in that moment what happens after that moment and where do we go you know once that is done and all of that ever since i was very very young so so i've been studying this looking at this talking to some of the experts in that discipline for a while and anyway so this is one of the things you know in that perhaps you you're aware of is which is incredible is how one of the common themes you know that happens to people who reach kind of like almost that point of death but then Miraculously, you know, they're they're able to recover from it. Is that when they report on what happened, you know, in that in that period, you know, in, in no man's land between life and death, um uh-huh. one of the common themes of the report is this notion of life review. And huh. in that life review, their whole life actually passes in front of them as if they're watching a movie. Yeah. And it's incredible. They say that actually everything in my life passed in front of my eyes like a time illusion because it how can everything be passing from your life? You know, you were only gone for about like an hour before the doctor recovered you from that, you know, that surgery, um, you know, gone bad. Um, but, but they apparently experienced even memories of things that had been um, erased from their memory. You know, their subconscious recorded that, you know, in the film. And then within that, um, many of them, not all, but many of them in that live review say that when they experienced that as a film, they were experiencing the feelings. Not just that they were going through, but the experience of the other party. So, if you've been the bully on the doing end of it, you're actually experiencing it from the other side. The person that you were actually bullying, what was their experience? As if your consciousness has expanded to include a much larger frame than you would have otherwise. I I, I found that to be an incredible um, device through which to recognize and anticipate that that moment will come to all of us? And if so, when that moment comes, how can we make sure that we, when we are watching that film, that actually we going to mostly feel pretty good, you know, about, about that film along the way? So, and, and I think it kind of like ties back to what you're, you know, what you're talking about, the importance of really studying regret and understanding regret and scripting a life at least going forward. I mean, it, it
1: does because, it, because in, in a sense what regret is, is regret is looking at that film before you're having the near-death experience. Uh, regret is looking at, the, looking at that film at other points in your life. And one of the things that happens is that when we look back, there are things that we regret. And in some ways, especially here in the United States, we have been sold a bill of goods that that is a bad idea, that you should always be positive and never be negative. You should always look forward and never look back. Uh, there's a kind of an ideology, almost this cultish positivity. And that's a bad idea. It is not a recipe for a good life. And it runs against what the science tells us. The science tells us that regret is part of our cognitive machinery. It is there for a reason. Uh, it makes us feel bad. But if we treat it right, it can help us do better. And that's that's the key. Um, and so, you know, I, in my own view, I think especially here in the States, we're a little over-indexed on positive emotions. Positive emotions are great. We should have lots of them. But we shouldn't have only positive emotions. Uh, We should have some negative emotions, too, because negative emotions are adaptive. They're functional. They help us live. They help us survive. They help us improve. And one of the things that you see in this, particularly in the the social psychology research, is that of all the negative emotions that we have, regret is the most common. And I think it's the most and, and the most and the most transformative. It is ubiquitous in the human experience, but it's also transformative if we treat it right. And the problem is we haven't been treating it right. A lot of us, when we feel that spear of regret, we ignore it. We say, oh, no, forget about it. Never look backward. Never look backward. I'll wait till my near-death experience before I watch the film. Um, so, so, And that's a that's a bad idea. Um, uh, and, and But what also happens sometimes when people look back is since they don't know how to process those events, since they don't know how to evaluate those, what happened to them, interrogate what happened to them, make sense of what happened to them, They feel bad, they get brought down by it, so they ruminate on their regrets. They wallow in their regrets. That's a bad idea too. What we wanna do is we want to confront our regrets, use them as information, as signal, as data. And when we do that, we have, uh, once again, evidence, 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 evidence that if we treat our regrets properly, they can be transformative. I I think about it from a business school perspective. Uh, There's evidence from, um, there's evidence that that regret, processing regret healthily in a healthy way can make us better negotiators. It can help make us better strategists. It can help us avoid cognitive biases. Um, It can help us make better decisions. It can help us become better problem solvers. And so we have this emotion that is aversive, but it is transformative. And we haven't been taught the ways to take that negative emotion and turn it into something positive.
0: There's a there's a story you share in the book, um, which in a very touching way, I think, reveals the power of what you just said, you know, taking regret and using it in just the right way to connect with it, not ignore it, but also use it as a force for good, you know, in your own life. And this is, um, you know, I mean, you have so many beautiful stories in the book, both from your own career and life and uh, those of others, like from the surveys that you've done. Um, the one that I was just you know, thinking about is Abby Henderson. You know that behavioral health researcher yep. uh, who um, shared, you know, shared something about, you know, one of her big regrets. Um, are you open to sharing that story with our audience? Sure, sure. No, no, just so,
1: so just to give, just to show my work here a little bit. Well, so what I did in the World regret Survey, this giant qualitative collection of regrets, is that I invited people around the world to submit a, a, a regret that they had. Uh, I asked only for their location, um, you know, their geography. I asked their age. I asked their gender identity. Uh, But I gave people the option to include their email address if they wanted to be contacted for a follow-up interview. And huge numbers of people did, way more than I ever expected. And Abby was one of the people who I did a follow-up interview with. And so she had this uh, pretty interesting kind of um, uh, uh, connection regret in that she, when she was growing up, her grandparents would come. She she grew up in Arizona. Her grandparents were from Indiana, and her grandparents would come and visit her for several months in the summer, and she hated it as a kid. She thought her grandparents were annoying. They thought that they were busybodies. They were pestering her. They were asking her questions, And, um, and she really didn't like them being there. And then, you know, as a young adult, her grandparents passed away, and suddenly she said, oh, my God, I blew it. I didn't hear their stories. I didn't get a chance to know them. They led such interesting lives, and here I was, this petulant kid dismissing them, this is a big mistake. And so here's what she did. She looked backward and said, if only I had treated my grandparents better, if only I had heard my grandparents' stories, okay? She felt bad. Now, the question is, what does she do with that bad feeling? She could say, ah, no, it doesn't matter. Always look forward. Not a problem. Bad idea. She could say, oh, my God, I'm the worst person in the world. But that itself is kind of indulgent, too, because believe me, you're not the only petulant kid who didn't like hanging out with their grandparents. Or she can say, wait a second. I'm feeling bad about something that occurred in the past. What is that signal telling me? Um and what the signal is telling me is that I actually value connection to family and it's also instructing me how to do different in the rest of my life. And so she very systematically began collecting the stories of her own parents because she wanted to avoid that terrible feeling in the future. And so this is a this is you know and 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 this is this is a way that processing our regrets properly can help us make sense of our lives. Can help us do better. And this is this is this is this is the paradox, not the paradise. This this is what makes it complicated. You know, my view, and I think the evidence is overwhelming in this, that regret clarifies what we value and instructs us on how to live better. Okay, it in- clarifies what we value and instructs us how to live better. So if you say to somebody, "I've got something that will clarify what uh, you, you know what you value and help you live better," people say, "Oh yeah, I'll take that." And I say, "Wait a second. But the thing is. It also makes you feel bad, okay? It actually makes you feel bad. It's, uh, and you say, well, I'll just take the first part. And that's not the offer. <laughs> the offer is that this thing that actually makes you feel bad, because it makes you feel bad, it, it transforms the way you see the world and the way you live your life. And so, so we want the clarity and the instruction, but we don't want the negative feeling, but that is not the deal. That is not the deal. And this is the thing that makes regret difficult for people to wrap their minds around. That is, it's this thing that makes us feel bad,
0: but if we treat it right, it helps us do better. And it also helps us avoid future regrets. I think in some ways, what you just told us is we have these outer teachers in life, whether school or experience, but then we have these inner teachers as well, you know, just the landscape of our feelings and the instinctual stirrings that arise from time to time. And Paying attention to those, honoring those, trying to understand, give meaning to those, is a key part of this whole sort of machinery of getting regret to work, you know, for us as opposed to against us. You know, looking at our feelings and experiences from within, not just from
1: without. Sure, but I, but I'll but I'll I'll see you and raise you on your point, Atendra. I mean, the what you have is is the, those two those two worlds are not necessarily starkly divided. Uh, one of the big one of the big issues that we one of one of the big things that you see in behavior in general, but attitudes toward regret in particular, is this belief that our inner lives are somehow singular, exemplary, different from everybody else's, uh, the, and and when in fact they're actually pretty common. And so one of the one of the things that brings people down with regret is that when they feel regret, and again, just to be very clear here, regret makes you feel worse. Right? When they feel regret, they say, "Oh my gosh, I must be the only one experiencing this," and you're not. It, it mm-hmm. is, a, you know, it's a it's one of the most common emotions that uh, it's a co- common emotions that human beings have. We we suffer from a sort of an almost an egocentric pluralistic ignorance where we think somehow that we're different, woefully, massively different from everybody else, when in fact we're not. Uh, And and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that when you actually explore this emotion, this emotion that is part of our cognitive machinery, what it reveals are some universal attributes of the human condition. What do we want out of life? Who do we aspire to be? What constitutes a life well-lived?
0: How do you distinguish between regret and guilt
1: yeah uh, so I think that guilt is a subset of regret so let me tell you what I mean by that guilt is guilt is uh, guilt is a moral regret and when I look at it I see um so you're at a you're at a point in your life as I was saying before these moral regrets where you had a choice to take the high road or the low road and you took the low road and now you feel bad about it but here's the thing most regret is not guilt okay that's 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 actually really important and the other categories that I found I'll go quickly through them I had this the category of what I call foundation regrets. Foundation yeah. regrets are small decisions people make early in life that gather steam and cause big problems later in life. Example: uh, I didn't exercise or eat right, and now I'm woefully out of shape and unhealthy. I I spent too much and saved too little, and now I'm broke. So these are things that just dis- small decisions that accumulate force and disrupt the stability of your life. Uh, because again, a lot of this goes back to what constitutes a good life and a good life has some stability. A good life is not precarious. Second one, very, very big category, way bigger than the moral regrets. Uh, and and typically having nothing to do with guilt at all is is what I call boldness regrets. Again, you're at a juncture. You can play it safe or you can take the chance. You can play it safe or you can take the chance. And overwhelmingly, when people do not take the chance, they regret it. Not all the time, but most of the time. And it doesn't really matter the domain of life that you're in. It could be, I regret, I got hundreds of people who regret not asking somebody out on a date 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. People who regret not traveling, not going on adventures, not starting a business, not speaking up. And so boldness regrets are a very, very large category. They basically said, if only I'd taken the chance. And then finally, our uh, connection regrets, which which are about love, and relationships, but not only romantic love. Um, a lot of the regrets about romantic love ended up uh, revolving around uh, essentially bad marriages. Um, you know, uh, uh, but uh, but the big category of connection regrets was about relationships that came apart, that 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 were intact or should have been intact, but that came apart um, often very slowly. Um, and you want to reach out, and you don't. Because you think it's going to be awkward, you want to reach out and you don't because you think the other side is not going to care, and you end up drifting apart from friends, from family, from uh, siblings, from people in your life who enrich it with with love. And, and again, not only um, romantic love. And so when we when we look at all of these kinds of regrets, what we see is that you know guilt is a is a subset of this very large category of of, of regret. Most regrets are not guilt; some are. Uh, but, but most regrets are not, uh, are not guilt.
0: You know, um, several years ago, I, um, had an unexpected meltdown in, um, a relationship. Uh, Again, not a romantic relationship, but just in one of the relationships, their relationships in my life. And, um, we stopped talking with each other. We stopped engaging with each other. I felt this person was being a little bit too stifling for me in terms of what they expected from me versus the kind of person I wanted to be and all of that. And then I remember going over to a monk that I have, you know, at times done to for guidance. And um, he said, Attenra, everything I know between you and this person, I think you should do the following, you know, stand your ground. You don't need to appease, but don't disengage, you know, just go back and just stay connected, just stay connected. And you can respectfully just listen. And if there's criticism of the kind that you don't agree with, you know, you can let it pass out of the other ear, but just be there, be present because this relationship is meaningful in your life. And so after about a couple of years of one impasse, I did sort of reconnect and re-engage and started to, it wasn't a very joyful kind of journey for the first year of that reconnection because, you know, there wasn't a lot happening in a way that was fulfilling, rewarding, like past years. But then at some point, you know, the, there's a meltdown and the person just starts to accept me for who I am. And uh, we start to rebuild, you know, sweetness and kinship and connection. And now it's been years since and I feel just so grateful and good that I took that person's advice, that monk's advice to reconnect with this person rather than Use that little, you know, two years of uh, you know a storm to just like permanently disengage, right? So I I relate very much to what you were saying. Like my God, I was just at that pivot point where this relationship could have just been ended forever, and didn't need to. Now that I look back and see what growth came from it, you know, right. And and the other
1: thing is, so so I, I think there are, I think there are several lessons in that tale. Uh, I really do uh, that come out of the research on regret. Uh, one of them is. Now a very very powerful lesson in general about regret that comes out that came out in both the qualitative research that I did it it's one of the it's I think it's the biggest finding that came out of the quantitative research that I did and it is very robust in the existing academic research and it's this that over time we are far more likely to regret what we didn't do than what we did (laughs) Um, that and and guilt is almost always you're getting back to guilt guilt is always almost always not always but but. Frequently, something that we did guilt is usually because of an action, not always, but often because of an action. Right. Uh, but over time, we are much more likely to regret inaction over action. It's a very, very, very sturdy finding, hey. um, and I think that the takeaway from that is that we should have a bias for action. That when we're, you know, we should have a bias in many cases, not all, but in many cases for doing something because we often overstate the risk uh, of what can go wrong if we if we do that. So I think that's a lesson for that. The, the second thing is that. Um, um, you know, we do have another form of, of, um, pluralistic ignorance so that a lot of times in the situation that you're in, we, or you see this with the connection regrets all the time. Um, you, you say to people, well, I had this friend and we sort of drifted apart and it's been 10 years since I talked to him and I want to reach out, but it's going to be really awkward and they're not going to care. And I say, you, you don't think they're going to care? No, nah, they're not going to care. Well, what if he reached out to you after 10 years? Would you care? Oh, my God, I would be so touched, you know? And so we somehow think that our experience is different from everybody else's. Yeah. And so I think that the idea is, the, the idea of having a bias for action uh, and also recognizing that the, the kinds of values and preferences that you have are likely shared by men, more, more share than you believe. Mm-hmm. More share than we believe. We are gripped in a kind of egocentric bias uh, where, and we are, you know, listen, we every every human being is different, is unique, is wonderful in that way. And our experiences trying to make our way through this world are singular in some way. That said, we have a lot in common. We are the same species. And even though there are differences in culture and in gender and in race and in sexual orientation, all those kinds of things, we are the same species. And there's a lot of similarity among human beings around the world.
0: Ramanujan is one of these like mathematicians that you know I'm great awe of. He was very prolific in the 20th century. Most of his work was just done intuitionally. You know, he would just have these creative breakthroughs. He hardly really studied formal mathematics much, but so he had this fondness and passion for just numbers. And so he he ends up um, describing the number line in the following way. He says the number one to me represents the essential unity of spirit, and the number infinity represents this infinite outer. You know, expressions. And um, yes. I think in, in, in what you're saying, you know, I, I see a little bit of that and describing humanity through that lens that let's search for the universals, let's attune ourselves to the universals, let's feel that sense of shared humanity. And yet at the same time, there's the outer thumbprint, you know, mine is different from yours, and we're all individual, unique expressions, and we have our own yeah. five journeys. And it doesn't even have to be limited to these four or five. Currently in fashion, socio-demographic groups that we tend to want to kind of segment along. There could be a thousand other choices we make about how we segment, you know, on the way people were raised on or on other aspects of their psychology and things like that. But we just happen to pick four or five right now, but, you know, you could pick a thousand and they could pick another thousand. So you've got this infinite diversity on the outside, but, but the shared humanity on the inside. Well,
1: Well said, and those two things are compatible. That's the thing. It's not, we're also in the grip of this kind of either or thinking. And, you know, are you a unique individual or are you or do you show some universal attributes and universal values? The answer is yes. Those two things are perfectly compatible. And and I do think that we you know, there is an element of the human condition that is less Newtonian and more quantum than we might want. Uh So you even see it in terms of you, you, you even see it in terms of some of the universal. So, for instance, I do think that much of human the human condition is. You know, ennobling, but I, I think that some of it is not. So, if you ask yeah. the question of, you know, are human beings generally uh, are, are human beings selfish or generous? Are human beings selfish or generous? The answer is yes. We are both selfish and generous. Yeah, those are both powerful attributes of, of the human condition, and they are in direct contradiction of each other. Um, in the same way that at the subatomic level, the 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 uh, the, the cat is is dead and alive simultaneously.
0: Yeah, and sometimes uh, I feel like it's not even that people can be divided into those that are evil and those that are good. It's not that across humanity you have this, but these are states, not traits. You know, and the same human being on a given day they might act evil for a couple of minutes, but then they might act good for another couple of minutes. Is that is that consistent with the other thing?
1: I mean, this is the this is why we have social psychology because social psychology is built on basic on essentially saying that. I mean, they're again. They're both. They're both right. I mean, people do have traits. Let's be very clear about that. People do have traits. Some people are introverted. Some people are extroverted. Some people are probably inherently more kind than others. All right. So there, there are traits. But the whole field of social psychology is premised on the idea that if you want to understand who we are and how we behave, you have to look at context. You have to look at the situation. You have to look at the environment. That human beings, our behavior is a mix of who we are, behaving in the context that that the context that we're in And so you see again history you know uh, of people doing horrible horrible things good people doing horrible things because of the context that that, we're, that we were in and in our egocentric bias looking back at that we say, oh my god if I were alive during uh, slavery in the United States, I would not have brooked this for a moment If I were alive during the Holocaust or pick your you know tr- your horror in the in the history of the world, And when, in fact, you probably would have gone along because because context drives our behavior more than more than we think.
0: There's the outer context, which you're so rightly pointing to uh, Dan. Um, And then uh, there's the inner context, too, isn't it? In terms of my thoughts and my feelings and, you know, how consumed I am in those or not, you know, and if I get triggered, sometimes I start like getting my thoughts very distorted and my behavior goes in a certain direction, whereas if I'm calmer. I'm more centered, you know, I might actually become a way different person within two minutes. There's no question about that.
1: Um, You know, again, we're a mix of, you know, you put you put me, I mean, a- again, I mean, in, in social psychology, the big problem is known as the fundamental attribution error, where we, when we try to explain people's behavior, we t- right. we, we tend to be over-indexed on their personality. Uh, so if you were to see, okay, for instance, here we go, let me give you, give you an example, all right? I don't like to drive, all right? I find driving extremely frustrating. And so when I drive, I'm a pretty unpleasant person. I swear a lot, I get frustrated easily, somewhat hot-headed. So if you were to see me only in the context of driving, you would see, think that I was a total ass. Um, and, but if you were to see me in almost any other realm of life, you wouldn't think that. And so if, if your only glimpse of me is when I'm behind the wheel, you think this guy's a horrible human being. But if you were to, if you were to see me in any other realm of life, you would say, this guy's fine. And so, this is, the, you know, so we are the inter, you know, we so, so which one is the real me? I don't know because we behave differently in different contexts. And the nice me and the asshole me are perfectly compatible. They, they inhabit the same uh,
0: physical and metaphysical space. Thank you for that, uh, Daniel. And, uh, you know, I loved the way you and your, um, uh, it's to sell is human, is not the name of the book. Uh, sell yes. is human. Uh, you you talk about some of the latest research on how we can be extroverts and introverts at the same time and be ambiverts, and then those who are ambiverts actually end up doing doing better. And so this notion of recognizing the fusion of opposites within us, you know, is uh, I think powerful, liberating, and can be quite you know, quite an enabler of getting people to become more self aware and ultimately self regulated, right? Intentionally.
1: Uh, that's a very good that's a that's a great point. It's a great connection to some of the other things that we were talking about. So this idea of, you know, being ambiverted is, is not my idea. It's been in the literature for a hundred years. Um, um, you know, and but a lot of times we have this very binary way of thinking. You're either an introvert or an extrovert. When in fact that trait, and it is a trait, that trait exists on a spectrum. So down on one side are people who are extremely introverted, on the other side are people who are extremely extroverted. And most of us are neither one nor the other. We exist at different spots along that spectrum. And the spot that we inhabit can be contextual.
0: So folks, here we are talking with Daniel Pink on primarily his latest work, The Power of Regret. I say primarily because there's so much richness to all that you've done in your career and life and so many more directions we could have taken in the conversation. So there's a little bit of that regret that I'm going to have about what we spoke about and what we couldn't speak about. <laughs> but I'm glad we made a little bit of a foray into one of the other pieces of work that I found so illuminating. And, and who drive is, by the way, the other the other one that I've felt to be very, very rich. And and I think particularly today, when you think about sort of what's happening in the world of business, evolution of culture, and all of that, the notion of moving more to the intrinsics versus the extrinsics, the understanding of human motivation, more from the inside out, which you've covered so well in Drive. I'm just trying to point our listeners to other parts of your work, which I think could be a tremendous insight to them I think it's very pertinent and timely for today um but let me let me sort of synthesize something that I'm seeing in your work on regret and then ask you a, a question on uh, on that so um as I see it in looking at the power the possibilities in regret I'm seeing you talk about it at two levels one is that guys when you have something you regret in the past don't disconnect from that feeling connect with that feeling and then ask yourself so now, what am I going to make from it? And what am I going to learn from it? How am I going to do something differently at least today or tomorrow or going forward while I can't rescript the past? So there's one of that. But then the other thing you're also saying is that, hey, you know what? Now that you know what regret is, makes you feel like and all of that, why not have a proactive view of your future path and anticipate the possibility that regret might come if you don't self correct in you know, a proactive it today yeah and so it's almost like it becomes like a guidepost or a proactive regulating mechanism for the for the future
1: absolutely i agree um and and the thing is it's like you know the way that we make that backward looking decision is we you know we we don't um, we treat ourselves with compassion rather than contempt uh, we recognize that mistakes are part of the human condition uh there's an argument to be made for talking about your regret um Writing about your regret because that's a form of sense making and is very important for us to take a step back and draw lessons from it. Uh, At the same time, though, as you're talking about anticipating regret, what we should be doing is we should be making, we should be anticipating the kind of regrets that we know we're going to have. Now, that's challenging because you can't anticipate, you can can try to maximize every future oriented decision, which is a bad idea. What you should be doing is you should be trying to reduce regrets that we know you're going to have because you're like everybody else. Regrets about building a stable foundation, regrets about acting boldly, regrets about being moral, and regrets about love. Um, anything else, you know, what t-shirt did you wear today? Or, you know, what, 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 what shirt should I wear tomorrow? Uh, let me anticipate what I'm going to regret the most. Who cares? It doesn't matter. You know, what am I going to have for lunch? What should what will I regret the most? Having, you know, a hamburger or macaroni and cheese for lunch. It doesn't matter. Uh, a lot of the decisions that we make don't matter. And that's something that people are find very, very uncomfortable. That a lot of the decisions that we make in our lives ultimately don't matter very much. But there are a few that matter a lot. And so since we're since we don't have infinite computing capacity up here, what you know, what you want to do is you want to actually do good enough on the minor, insignificant decisions and really spend your time and your energy and your brain power on the on the big decisions, which again yeah. ultimately go around to stability
0: and growth and love and and goodness. Stability, growth, love, and goodness are emerging from those four, four kinds yeah. of re- regrets you talked about, right? Exactly. The foundational, the moral, yeah, and the connection, and, and um, the what do you call them? The boosters, the the one that make you grow. Um, so here's a here's a, a conundrum. Um, when I look back at um, that moment in my life, um, which uh, links with your observation about you know being. Uh, Yale Law School student, and at some point realizing that's really not the path you would really want to invest in, and therefore feeling a sense of regret about that, um, which is kind of at some level a feeling that I had when I joined McKinsey, and I was doing strategy consulting, and I was thinking, like, what the hell did I do this PhD for? You know, it, 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 I had to spend a year trying to kind of unlearn most of the stuff I'd learned in my PhD in order to kind of really fully shine in my strategy work at McKinsey, um, and then later on, I did a startup in Silicon Valley. And then, you know, 15, 20 odd years from now, I ended up going to academia and the teaching and ultimately into the science of human nature and all of that. And I look back and say, like, what was it doing in Silicon Valley? What was it doing in McKinsey? What was it doing in mathematics? And, you know, things doing. that said, that said, um, I have also had a growing realization that there were certain attributes and qualities that those experiences actually cultivated in me. Which, mm. when I look back, they have stood me in very good stead. And, you know, so for example, for me, the analytic kind of training that I got in my PhD, I feel like I have approached the discipline of leadership and personal growth, which are my passions seen you know, in the last several years, from that sense of keenness towards pausing and defining things in very precise ways and almost breaking down a mathematical formula, some of these fuzzy, mushy kinds of issues in trying to look for patterns and structures, which is very, very much what mathematics is, you know. So that's an example. The startup that I did, I mean, I made several errors there, you know, about like revenue projections and financial maths and hiring the wrong people versus the right people and all that. And now, the last ten odd years, as I built my new my mentor institute, you know, through which we do leadership and culture work, my heavens, you know, those emotional scars that I generated back then, have actually been really helpful to make sure I don't instinctually go down the wrong paths, you know? So I almost felt like life was deliberately in those moments pushing me into certain experiences because it knew better than I did, you know, as to what my future held in store and what it needed to kind of like help embed in me. Anyway, that's like meaning making going on from my side. In your book, you talk a lot about the power of meaning making and storytelling and how we're both actors and authors at the same time. Um, But that's at least a kind of storytelling that I've personally found very You know, um, very harmonizing. You know, for me in life to be able to connect the dots. You know, as Steve Jobs would have said, looking backward. Well, I mean, so some of what you're talking, some of what you're talking about has
1: roots in some person and research in personality psychology, where Dan McAdams at Northwestern has a theory of personality that's rooted in narrative, and he says there are two reigning kinds of narratives. One is called a a contamination narrative. The other is called a redemption narrative. A contamination narrative is when things go from uh, good to bad. And a redemption narrative is one where things go from bad to good. And the more that we can frame and see our lives as redemption narratives, so we take right. the bad in our lives and say, how can I extract from that and make it good? Uh, that seems to be a, uh, a, a, a pattern for healthy living. So the more we, the more we, and that's up to us, um, that I, and I don't think that life is determining our fates. Um, what, what I do think, is, and I think that we are determining our fates, but I think that we determine our fates in part by making sense of our early experiences and using those to as forms of redemption rather than forms of contamination.
0: We are coming close to wrapping up our time together. I am so grateful for all that you have shared. But more importantly, than you just exude, you know, a, um, such a insatiable curiosity, openness, you know, it's um, sponge-like sort of, I think, you know, appetite in you to just absorb, you know, all the science of human nature, um, organize it in your own mind in beautiful ways and then expose it in beautiful ways for us as well. So I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, at this stage of your career and life, you know what is your what is your big dream? Let's just kind of just end with that. What's your big dream in terms of what you're personally aspiring for? I wish I had a better
1: answer for you, Tendra. I I uh, I don't really, um, you know. I I think that for me, where I am right now is at this the moment that you are talking to me today on a Monday afternoon in January in 2023. You know, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what how do I want to spend, say, the next 30 years of my life? Um, What do I want to do daily and how can I make, you know, what kind of contribution can I make? And that's not an answer that I'm going to be able to figure out in a day or a week or a month. Um, But it's that sort of, that's that sort of front of mind. And I don't know the answer to that. And that's okay. I I will, I think I will, uh, my hunch is that I'll end up discovering the answer through action.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. I know that one of our mutual friends, Arthur Brooks, has done a lot of good thinking on that you know, in, in recent times with his latest book, and I'm sure there's much in there that you and I can both tap. But that was very honest and open of you, and um, I'm sure it'll be actually quite affirming to so many of us here who are facing you know, similar questions in our lives. So thank you for joining us today, and you know, thank you for all the great work you do uh, to bring you know, newest and freshest and deep insight, but also of timeless wisdom about human nature. And um, I know all my listeners are joining me and wishing you all the best for your career and for your life and for getting to the fulfilling, lasting answer to the question you just raised for yourself. Well, thank
1: you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me. I, I I, I enjoyed our conversation. It really made me think.